One day, our principal announced it was class photo day. A photographer came to take a group photo of our class. We all gathered in the library to take the photo, Seth continued. All 25 of us. The photographer lined us up. I recognized him right away, Eddie broke in. He was an angry man, an evil man. He hated kids. We were all in a crazy mood, Mona added. We were laughing and joking around a lot and pretending to wrestle, and the photographer became furious because we wouldn't sit still for him. I'll never forget his name, Eloise said sadly. Mr. Chameleon. Because a chameleon changes colors, and we can't. Seth continued, pacing back and forth, hands shoved into his gray pants pockets. He stood behind his big box camera. It had a drape on the back that he stuck his head under. Then he raised the flash high. He told us to say cheese. Then the flash went off with a loud crack. The room, the library, it disappeared in a flash. And when we could open our eyes, we were here. Here in this black and white world. Hello. And welcome. To Say Podcast and Die. The podcast where two queers sit in their closet and tell you about Goosebumps. And today we are talking about Goosebumps number 59, The Haunted School. I'm Alyssa. I'm Andy. Let's get into it. This is another one of those situations we've had recently where we wonder whether R.L. Stein knows what haunted means. <laughs> it seems like for a big chunk of these, the title came first and then the outline came later. <laughs> yeah. Also, this book... So I... First of all, I'm just going to say up front that I loved it. I'm not sure you did. I enjoyed it. Okay. This feels to me like a book where there are maybe three different plots happening, two of which are happening off screen. Should I get into a bird's eye view or... Well, I guess we should talk to the cover. Talk about the cover first. (laughs) Let's talk to the cover. Let's talk to the cover. It has curly on it and some mysterious eyes. Yeah. It's a pink and orange set of lockers opening with a bunch of books and papers spilling out that are in grayscale. This is, I think, one of the most subdued covers we've ever seen. I mean, a lot is happening, but the grayscale does make it seem subdued. Mm-hmm. I think that's why Curly's picture is stuck there on the inside of the locker, to give it a little excitement. Yeah. Because those eyes looking out are very, I don't know, it's like you're in a forest at night. I also am impressed with this student whose locker it is, because they have about 17 textbooks, <laughs> but they're still maintaining an A, B, getting A, B's, A's and B's on their papers. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Okay, bird's eye view of the plot. Tommy Frazier. He's a new kid. He's 12. His dad just got remarried to his new mom. As Which also him. never comes up, really. He's at Bell Valley Middle School, and he meets some cool kids called Talia and Ben. They're setting up for a school dance, and then he accidentally finds out when a poster rips and he has to go fix it in the art room along with Ben that... I mean, basically, they end up in this weird alternate dimension that's hidden within the school. Because when the school first opened, 1947, 25 students just disappeared. There's these weird statues of them, some artist made in the school. There's all these little threads that keep getting dropped. And he's hearing voices around the school before he goes into this alternate dimension. Also doesn't really get explained. Anyway, he ends up in the alternate dimension. And then it's these kids who disappeared in the 40s, and they're all in black and white, and the whole world is in black and white, and they're very depressed about it. He only meets, like, five of them at first, and it turns out it's because the other 19, and yes, I know that doesn't add up to 25, (laughs) have gone feral. They have started some kind of cult. Uh, They've gone mad with the lack of color, and there's a very scary run-in with them where the children seem about to dump Ben and Tommy into a vat of boiling tar or something (laughs) but then the five sane kids show up and rescue them and 
then they're all hanging out in the classroom thinking they're going to be stuck there forever in the black and white world. And Ben and Tommy are starting to turn black and white themselves. And then Talia shows up. Remember her? A fun detail about Talia, she wears a lot of makeup. The reason she wears a lot of makeup? She's in black and white. She is that 25th kid. And she draws a lipstick window for them to escape through because for some reason... She, she was able to do this earlier because for some reason her lipstick still had color, which somehow means it can dissolve walls. Not everything's totally adding up. But anyway, Ben and Tommy get back. And then there's a fun twist at the end. Is that about it? Yeah, I think so. We'll get into it. It is the fall of 1997 in Bell Valley, which is, do you want to know what Bell Valley is? Yeah. There are many Bell Valleys, including an Anabaptist K-12 school of 61 students in Sugar Creek, Ohio, (laughs) where the median rent is $500 a month. Damn it. (laughs) Uh, They suspiciously have no website. I don't know about this school. It's also a retreat. Didn't you say they were Amish? Anabaptist. Oh, Anabaptist. Okay. I don't know if Anabaptists have websites normally. I don't know. (laughs) Beyond the scope of my knowledge. It's also a retreat center in Mendocino County. <laughs> a small ice-free valley near the oddly named Urban Point in Antarctica. Huh. And uh, it's a road near Rum- Rumney in New Hampshire, where my climbing friends are always trying to get me to go outdoor climbing. <laughs> and I'm like, do I have to go in a car? <laughs> Outdoors? What's wrong with indoors downtown? <laughs> so I don't know which one of these Bell Valleys we're in, but I'm like, maybe it's the Anabaptist School. I don't know. We open with Tommy Fraser falling off a ladder. Because this is the 90s, there are three kids unsupervised in a gym, and one of them is climbing on a ladder and falling off of it. <laughs> and they're, they're, they say they think they're the only people left in the school that day. Yeah, and so we have, not unlike the blob who ate everyone, we have the friend who mostly just makes fun of him, which is Ben Johnson. Sorry, Ben Jackson. I thought Ben Johnson because of <laughs> your poet. studies. Yeah. And playwright. And then we have Talia Helpert hyphen Rodis as our first hyphenated last name, right? Which makes, I think it might be our second. Second, yeah. But either way, it might be the first. It makes mm-hmm. me wonder, if that's her real name, wouldn't it ring a bell when all these kids go missing? Well, she has this very specific name. And also, how did she get on any of these rosters? How, I'm not sure she How did. does anyone know who she is? Yeah. Anyway. She's the supportive one, the, the, like, kinder one. And she wears a lot of lipstick, and Tommy apparently doesn't know what blush is. Yeah, he's He's, like, she puts this orange powder on her face. Yeah, whenever Arlstein also didn't know the term and was like, eh, some powder. Yeah, I'm in a hurry. (laughs) Makeup, whatever, you know, silly. Tommy is on the dance decorations committee. So, and we learn that he's the new kid here, and his dad just remarried, and they, they moved here right before the start of the school year. It's not that people are unfriendly, but they have their own friend groups, and so it's hard for him to make friends. And some of them are unfriendly. They make fun of Talia a lot for wearing so much makeup, and they're like, oh, she thinks she's a masterpiece. But she's very much in that mold of, you remember the movie Juno, where she's like, oh, but guys secretly like those freaky girls, you know? I've never seen Juno. Oh, well, I guess that might not be a very relevant reference to, (laughs) but... That's the type of girl it seems like Tommy is into. Yeah. It's also interesting because... My experience of entering middle school was the opposite. All of a sudden, everyone is wearing makeup, and I'm not. Yeah. And so it was very strange Yeah, that that for some reason they were all sort of like, oh, who do you think you are? Yeah. Well, it's like, when do you start, right? Between Mm -hmm. sixth and seventh grade, I feel like there was a real changeover. Well, and it's interesting, too, when we get into some of this later, re our abiding interest in adolescence and queerness Mm -hmm. and adapting to gender roles. Talia does decide to leave the makeup behind. Yeah. It's not really her. Yeah, that's true. It's her disguise. Okay, so speaking of body shaming, do you have any comments on new mom? 
Oh, on New Mom? No, I didn't make any notes about her. No, on what New Mom says about her new son. Oh, yeah. So, Tali and Ben are tall and skinny. Tommy, because everyone has to be a contrast, is short and chubby. And she says he'll be so cute when he grows out of his baby fat. Yeah, I feel like we should do a, like, one of our mini-sodes on parenting advice from the Goosebumps book. (laughs) Based on what not to do. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so they're making banners. They make one that says, dance till you puke. Yeah, and then the principal, Mrs. Borden, Ah. mm, vetoes it, and they have to do one that says, welcome, everybody. That makes me think this is New Hampshire, because that should be in the sort of New England Bordens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of the New England Bordens. Yeah. Ben and Talia start arguing because they've only brought down black paint, and... They want red. They want red, and the art room is on the third floor, and no one wants to climb the stairs. So Tommy volunteers to go get it. He's adorable. He's just so eager. He's like, I'll get it. I don't mind. I I definitely am really wanting to make friends. I hope you like me. He makes a lot of jokes at his own expense because of his weight, and that's very sad. Poor guy. But yeah, so he... Talia gives him directions. He starts to run out of the gym, and he runs smack into another girl uh, and knocks her over. uh, And she's really mad about it. And, And later we'll learn this is Greta. She sounds cool. She's tall and broad-shouldered and reminds Tommy of those women wrestlers on TV. (laughs) Uh, Those women wrestlers on TV. (laughs) I wondered, Greta, I mean, this isn't exactly how Helga from Hey Arnold looks. She's not so bulky, but she kind of struck me as a Helga. Yeah. Which had just premiered in 96. Oh, wow. Tommy gets up to the art room and he hears voices that sound a little bit like Talia's and Ben's, but when he goes into the art room, there's no one there. Yeah, he's a little paranoid because he, like, hears the voices laughing and he's like, someone's playing a joke on me. This isn't funny. And it's like, maybe there's just people in the other room. Yeah. Also, there's an art project that is a mobile made of wire hangers and soup cans, which sounds like a cool feminist comment on domesticity by some junior hire. And comment on the inability to buy more sophisticated art supplies in in a school. Yeah. So he gets the paint, gets spooked by the janitor. And then he ends up getting lost. He doesn't remember how he got back in. Apparently this building's very confusing. And he goes down a different stairwell than he came up. He's really freaking himself out. So he sees a skeleton. And, of course, it's in the science lab. He thinks he sees a black cat. And it's just a a wool cap. He's freaking himself out. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the thing I was most weirded out by is there's a trophy case with a pennant in it that says, Go, comma, bisons. (laughs) Is the plural of bison bisons or bison? Oh, I think it's bison. Bison, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Like buffalo, buffalo. Yeah. Bison, bison. I think, yeah, it is the plural. Well, also, okay, so first of all, that I didn't even think about, but just, I know technically you would say go, comma, team, but nobody would write it that way, least of all on a pennant. Yeah. I tried to look. I looked up go, you know, go Zags, my my alma mater. There's no commas in any of that merchandise. I mean, no. But yes, it is a weird way of writing it. Thank you. Uh, also, Tommy comments, oh, what a bad team mascot, because aren't bisons big and slow and almost extinct? And I was like, much like the children in this school, <laughs> actually. Well, he gets to the end of this hallway, and there's just a door boarded up with rotting boards. Like, cool. Everyone thinks it's normal. Well, we learned that the old school where the children disappeared, they just built a new school around it. Yes, that makes absolutely no sense. They're like, ah, oh, this was so sad. that We just, 
yeah, we built another building around it and we don't go in that building anymore. That is a wild way to deal with tragedy and architecture. Which author can you think of is that most appropriate to, right? Yeah. R.L. Stein is all about having a rotting, repressed, barely restrained place inside of yourself where you build where everything your... is dark and gray. Yeah, and you build your outer self around it. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's so colorful out there. Uh-huh. But I was also wondering, you know, on a cheesy allegorical level if this absent presence at the center of the school could be analogous to the absent old mom at the center of Tommy's consciousness that he's not dealing with. I guess so. We never learn anything about old mom. Right? (laughs) (laughs) And so next to this door are two unmarked doorways. So he goes through one and it's full of statues of children and they're incredibly detailed. We also learn that Tommy carries a red plastic lighter on him, which feels edgy for a goose kid. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, and he so he flicks it on so that he can get a better look. Uh, he says it's it was from his grandfather, you know, before he passed. But it's just like, like a red plastic It's, it's like bick. a fucking bick, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he sees there's a sign that says class of 1947, and then he is caught by the principal, Mrs. Borden. And, and he has this weird aside about how, you know, she's friendly, but they haven't really talked much since, since he got to the school. Like this morning, he couldn't talk to her because there was a pack of dogs roaming all over the playground. And she had to deal with that instead of saying hello to him. So I felt like this, like I said, there's like four other plots that we don't get to see. It's a little bit Welcome to Night Vale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking My Hairiest Adventure. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's totally Welcome to Night yeah. Vale. But I was wondering if it's, you know, some of the kids from My Hairiest Adventure trying to return to life as children. <laughs> like the playground. Oh, wow. We'll play tag. Yeah. So then she tells him, yeah, that the class of 47 went missing. And as a result, they just boarded up the old school and built a new school around it. And the statues are a trippy. I'm sorry. That's just so wild as a response. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I guess they only had the money for the building and not the demolition. It seems like it'd be structurally unstable, ultimately, though. And also, like, way bigger than it needed to be. Yeah, you're right. Because there's a building in the middle that no one's taking care of. But also just imagine every time there's a tragedy, he's like, well, we're done with this building. Like, board it up, build something new. And then Mrs. Borden is like, oh, a local artist made these statues. And it's like, A, there are these kind of disgustingly hyper-realistic statues of missing children. Who's this local artist who just did this? And then they put them in a dark room and lock it away. Well, they don't lock it, but they close it away. Yeah. It's like, why is it in there? Right. I'm wondering... I mean, is it to keep the other kids out, to keep them trapped in that world in some way? I don't know. I have suspicions about Mrs. Borden, although I do like her. Yeah. So. I like her party dress. Later on, she's dressed like a, she's in a Tolstoy novel. She's fun the way you would imagine the Borden clan to be fun. (laughs) She guides Tommy back downstairs where he finds Talia and Ben sprawled out face down on the floor and they're like, oh, you were gone so long that we fell asleep. And they think this is hilarious. <laughs> it's a little funny. Um, so Ben leaves and then Tommy recounts everything for Talia. Uh, Talia says that the girl he bumped into was Greta and he tells her about the voices that he heard and she tears up and runs away. We cut to a few days later. The teacher, Mr. Divine, has to leave their classroom for a few minutes and everybody just kind of goes wild. Be like, we're dancing, we're throwing stuff. And then Talia and Greta have an altercation. Talia is putting on lipstick. Greta grabs it from her and kind of does keep away. And Talia is extremely upset. And Tommy's like, hero time for Tommy Frazier. Although I didn't know why she was acting so insane about it. It's just lipstick. Yeah, but he... And Greta draws a smiley face on Talia's forehead with the lipstick. That's really mean. It is really mean, yeah. He says he's going to teach Greta a lesson, and all he does is say, give it back. 
Yeah. And he tries to take it away from her. And drops it, yeah. And then Mr. Divine comes back. And, I love Mr. Divine. And then he's like, you know what? We've got 20 minutes left in class. Just sit and read quietly. Yeah, he's like, I have paperwork to do. <laughs> he reminds me of the hungover teacher from My Friend Dahmer, who's just yes. like, everybody be quiet while I like, sleep it off. Uh-huh. And so Tommy spends that time reading a Ray Bradbury story, which from the description, like it doesn't say, but it's All Summer in a Day, which is about children on Venus experiencing one hour of sun. Yeah, every seven years. And they lock one girl away so that she won't get to see it. And then they all feel really guilty after. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool. Apparently there was a TV adaptation where they changed that ending because they thought it was too sad. Sort of misses the point, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> but I learned in exploring this that Ray Bradbury's first book was actually published in 1947. Dark Carnival. Oh, cool. Uh, published by Arkham House. Uh, of course. Uh, under August Erleth, of course, yeah. As they're sitting quietly, Tommy hears a, vo- hears a girl's voice saying, help me. And he, he looks around and can't see who's saying it. So yes, you know, anybody else hear that? And Mr. Divine says he's too young to start hearing voices. But Talia looks at him curiously. Mm. Yeah. Time for the dance. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's a band called Grunt Performing, which is a cool name. (laughs) They have five guitarists and a drummer, and three of the guitarists don't know how to play the guitar. Yes. and Which feels like a real, like, uh, kids today and their music moment. Yeah. Well, they're 12. You know, I'm just proud of them for having the guts to go up and perform for a school dance. That's fair. Also, this is, I feel like, why you shouldn't have only children setting up the dance. Because it's 7.30, the dance starts at 8, there's tons to go, and they spend a ton of time trying to get the tablecloth straight. Yeah, and then they accidentally rip it. And then someone else points out that, apparently the kids were in charge of doing the ordering, but someone ordered only Mountain Dew and no Coke. It's like... <laughs> but the thing is, Mrs. Borden is super chill about it. She shows up in a red dress and a tiara mm-hmm. and makes fun of Tommy for being stressed. Yeah. She's like, wow, you're sure tense, man. Why don't you just take some pictures with my Polaroid camera? Which never comes up again. I really wanted that. Like, It seems like the camera should have been figuring. Mm-hmm. I bet there was a point at which it did figure into the plot. And then he was like, eh, I don't know. Yeah, but whatever. It hit my workout. <laughs> yeah. So, and then we find out Greta's the drummer of the band, so there's, you know, some tension there. And then two of the guitarists start having a fight with their guitars, kind of, like, waving them around. No, it's one guitarist and Greta, yeah. and they decide to just have a guitar duel to be silly. Yeah, and they end up ripping down one of the posters, which was their best poster, so the, you know... Because the... they didn't try to draw a bison on it. <laughs> <laughs> the kids decide that they need to tape it, so... Ben and Tommy head to the art room. And Tommy says, ah, I know the way. I know where I'm going. Which doesn't make any sense. But, of course, he somehow leads them to the door that's boarded up. They just come to this dead end. And so Ben decides to bang on these rotting boards, which just fall away. And then they decide, let's go in here. Yes. Oh, there's an old elevator here. A working elevator. And Tommy's like, well, they say it's a working elevator. And Tommy's like, let's take it. What? It's clearly not hooked up to anything. And they go inside. Of course, they get trapped. One version of this story could be to say, eventually they die in here. Yeah. And the rest of the story is just Tommy trying to narrate a better ending to himself. Mm -hmm. But that's always my answer. They actually died at this point. Yeah. Yeah, this also seemed like one of your fears. You know, last week we had crabs grabbing you and now it's elevators not opening. I got totally stressed because I had this, you know, like they can't call the fire department. That thing's not hooked up. No one's going to think to look for them behind these rotting boards in a part of the school no one goes to. Yeah, so they're pushing all the buttons. Nothing is happening. There's no door open button. 
Tommy says, don't panic. And when Ben says, why shouldn't I panic? Tommy says, I want to panic first. <laughs> and he's, he's just trying to make a joke and calm the situation. Not really effective, but I did appreciate that. They see a red button after pushing all of the other buttons for several minutes. They're like, ah, there's also a red button. And they push it and the elevator starts moving sideways. Because it's not actually an elevator. It's a horizontal ladder. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. I'm not funny. <laughs> I think you're funny. And the doors open into blackness. So they're like, well, let's go out and not prop the door at all. No. <laughs> and of course, there's no way to call the elevator from the other side. And they can't see anything. It's pitch black, the darkest they've ever been. They're feeling the way along the wall. And they hear some coughing. And then they are not alone. Someone turns on the light. And then a girl in an old-fashioned dress steps out. She's wearing saddle shoes. And she's all gray. She says, oh, we heard you coming, but we didn't know who you were. And then more kids pop out. And they all start tearing at Ben and Tommy's clothes and going, the color, it hurts my eyes. It's so beautiful. It's like a dream. And one's like, do you still dream in color? And <laughs> they're getting weird. They pull off one of the kid's shoes. Yeah. And they ask, did you come to help us? And Tommy and Ben are like, no. And then the kids tell them that they can't leave. There's a weird gender watch moment to hear where one of the kids, a guy named Seth, steps up and is explaining some of the stuff. And Tommy says, oh, yeah, Seth, the leader. And I'm like, I mean, he is the athletic male there. but You know, the leader. <laughs> I think you're assuming a lot about their structure of these kids' world. I also realized we've been hearing a lot lately, I can't let you leave or you can't ever uh -huh. leave in these books. Maybe so that's how Arlstein was feeling about the Goosebumps <laughs> series. So they sit down and they keep trying to explain and Tommy and Ben keep interrupting and running for the door. I was so frustrated. Just listen to their fucking explanation before you try something. So they eventually explain that the door is locked. It leads to the world of color. They are on the, quote, other side of the wall. <laughs> and they explain that they were the class of 1947. I keep noting Ben and Tommy interrupt. Um, <laughs> and then Mona, one of the kids, suggests that the elevator somehow moves between worlds. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, this is it's as good as any of our guesses. It makes me wonder about the person who was behind building the school around the school, whether it's like, it reminds me of the dairy sewer system a little, mm -hmm. right? Where no one totally knows what went into it and how it's all put together. Yeah. But someone must have put that there on purpose, you know? Yeah. Also, that's when we learn about Mr. Chameleon. <laughs> and um, the whole town knew he was evil, but he was the only photographer around. So we hired him to come to our children's school. <laughs> what, are you going to not have a photo of your children? I'm just, yeah. It, it just made me think of the Netflix documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight. Yes. You're like, so you're just going to have him babysit. <laughs> Despite everything you yeah. know about him. Yeah. So that's when we learned that he hated kids. He took the picture. He said, say cheese. Uh, uh, and then they disappeared in a blinding flash and ended up here in the black and white and gray world. Which they call gray world. Yes. That's a much, <laughs> actually more to the point name, isn't it? Yeah. Also, one of them asks, did you ever see a wall and wonder what was on the other side? It was just like, any wall? Like, I mean, there's a wall right there, but like, I know it's the other apartment. I mean, and yeah, I've wondered what's on the other side of the wall. I'm not sure why we need this metaphor. It's not really even a metaphor since you are on the other side of the Literally, wall. Literally, yeah. You're just in a different part of the building. Maybe they just thought Ben and Tommy were really not smart, so they were trying to explain. <laughs> in the building, you are on the other side of this wall. <laughs> yeah. If that helps. It doesn't seem to. <laughs> so Tommy looks down and notices that his fingers are turning gray. Ben and Tommy are starting to transform. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they start making all of these suggestions. The kids are obviously exasperated because they've had 50 years to try and figure this thing out. And obviously they've tried looking for a way to open the door. They've tried calling for help. Yeah. And in one of the kind of real world fears of this, they say, you know, you can call and bang on the door all you want. No one ever comes for help. Mm -hmm. Which, first of all, I think lends some credence to my theory that this is really Tommy going mad trapped in the elevator Mm. still banging and calling for help. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, this is what a lot of school accident horror stories like the Phantom of the Auditorium are kind of about, is adults failing to help you. Yeah, it's true. That's when Ben and Tommy notice that there's a window, and they say, well, let's go out the window. The other kids say, you got to stay away from the other kids who are out there, because they'll take you to the pit. Yeah. Ben and Tommy ask no follow-up questions. (laughs) They go out the window, and they're in a different world than the one that they know. It's kind of cool. There's no stars or moon. The moon does eventually appear, but when it does, it's gray. It's the darkest they've ever seen. They're kind of freaked out that there's this whole other world hidden somehow next to theirs, which is really freaky. Mm Mm-hmm. And they think that they're like shadows running through darkness is how they feel. Yeah. It's like the opposite of the world in Let's Get Invisible, which was super bright. Yeah, that's true. And then a fog rolls in and they they sort of get lost in it and they can't find their way back to the school. So Tommy suggests that they go to one of the houses they can see on the horizon and break in and spend the night there. And then a cat jumps on him, which I really liked as a detail because I think it's very true to the horror mythos that cats can travel between dimensions Mm -hmm. and just do it all the time. Yeah. Like, did you, were you wondering where I was? I'll never tell. Yeah. It also made me wonder if, since there are 25 kids now, if you count Talia, and there were 25 kids then, have they been eating cats this whole time? Ugh. Well, I mean, I I don't know. I I hadn't thought it out. It's possible. Gotta be eating something. Do they? Well, maybe not. Maybe if they're frozen in time and don't age or anything, maybe they don't have to groom or poop or eat or yeah. whatever. Yeah, there's no word on whether they they have access to a bathroom in but the school. It is true, though, that Eloise, I think it was, or Mary, Eloise, I think, has mm-hmm. a cold. Oh, yeah, and she's had a cold the whole time. And she says it's because there's no sunlight. Yeah, but maybe it's just because she had a cold when she got trapped there. Yeah. That sucks. It really does. So then some kids show up. Then these kids notice that Ben and Tommy still have some color. And so they're also obsessed with that. But then they start circling them and chanting, turn, turn turn, turn, turn to gray. And they do this really weird dance while circling around them. Yeah, this kind of sidestepping kicky dance. Yeah, what passed for a dance in the 1940s. (laughs) Sounds kind of like the electric slide. (laughs) Tommy thinks that they're doing some kind of weird ceremony to keep them there. And then he suggests to Ben, why don't we run in different directions? Oh, he says... up, yeah. (laughs) This is another case where... So he says that out loud, and then the kids, like, tighten their grip, and he's like, they read my mind. Yeah! Which also happened in Vampire Breath. You're yeah. like, no, they heard you. Yeah, it's They're very different. Yeah. So they try to break out, but Tommy immediately pulls a muscle and Ben gets tackled. <laughs> <laughs> These kids don't have to work very hard. They're a real dream team. Yeah. And the kids are so cool. Arlstein did some really good writing here, I think. So the kids keep saying things like, no color in the moon, no color in the stars, no color in my dreams, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then they're like, why did you guys leave the school? And they're like, no color in the school. (laughs) And then they take them to this, the black pit pit Mm -hmm. thing. So when they're at the pit, they bring buckets of a steaming liquid and a bunch of cups and they start pouring that liquid into cups and say, drink. And then they start like spitting it at each other and like covering themselves in blackness because there's no color. Arlstein, you've already veered into inappropriate blackface territory once. I think we're back. Why are you doing it again? <laughs> Why? Yeah. 
Did they? I wonder how they changed this one, or if they were able to at all in rewrites, or if they will in future rewrites, because it's kind of fucked up. They like yes, put this black stuff all over themselves, and then they're like, "We are the blackness," and it's mm-hmm. like, I think this isn't okay. Yeah. And so I was thinking about this story. I'm like, this is love. This is Earl Stein at his most Lovecraftian. And then Blackface happens. I'm like, yes. Yes. It is Earl Stein at his most Lovecraftian. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Yeah. The pit is boiling hot and it smells like dead animals. So maybe that's what the kids have been eating? Yeah. Just as they're about to be pushed in, Seth and the others from the school come to rescue them. The feral kids all encircle them. And then Tommy grabs this lighter. Oh, and specifically says a great... 90s fashion watch line, I shoved my hand into the pocket of my khakis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's, that's, that's how you know he's the hero. He's wearing khakis. <laughs> yeah, so he pulls out his lighter and sets a pile of leaves on fire. And this could be just because we just watched Titan, the French serial killer car sex movie, which was cool and weird. It is but, the best movie you'll ever see about a serial killer getting impregnated by a car. I mean, I, so far. <laughs> um, so that has a blaze that gets out of control. So maybe that was just on my mind. But I was like, what is the fallout of him setting fire to these dry leaves? Yeah, he might have burned down their entire world. Right. He knows like the state to find tar out. pit over there. Yeah. Yeah. Seems and flammable. Clearly dry leaves. Yeah. It's going to get to the school eventually. It might be the end of all of these children. Yeah. And maybe their school too. Who knows? But he doesn't think about that. They run back to the school. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, and the kids are, the feral kids are crying because it's so bright. They're not used to seeing color. And of course, it's spreading and it's driving them mad, you know, in Lovecraftian terms. But yeah, my note says, oh, it's the setting fires is the answer. Got it. <laughs> so and then, oh, lessons. yeah, like, and then my next note was, are they all going to burn to death? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we both thought of that. Yeah. Seth and Ma- Eloise and Mary kind of explain what's going on, or at least their version. They also sneak in some well-deserved I told you so's. Yeah, appropriately. But they say that these kids do horrible, crazy things and have given up all hope. And like, what did they do? I know. What horrible things. I wish we'd spent more time in this world. Me too. So when they get back, Tommy and Ben are all gray except for their cheeks and nose. And the kids tell them that one girl escaped a couple weeks ago, but, but hasn't come back. And Tommy immediately suspects it's Greta because she wears black. Like, okay. Tommy decides to use the lighter to light up the room. And then the elevator rumbles and out steps Talia. And she doesn't obviously. <laughs> she doesn't. The door. Yeah, she doesn't put anything to block the door. Oh, it makes me so mad. Yeah, she comes in, hugs her, hugs her friends, and the doors close. She's gotten a lot done in the last few weeks, by the way, because it's only been a few weeks since she escaped. She managed to enroll in school. She found blue contact lenses. Yeah. She must be living somewhere. She, yeah, I don't. Learned about makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And so she explains she found this her tube of lipstick at the bottom of her bag. And maybe because it wasn't exposed to light, question mark, it stayed red. And so she drew on the walls with it and it opened a window to the other side. And she wanted to live in the color world, but she realized she doesn't belong there anymore. So she's coming back to be with the other children who look similar to her. So two things. First of all, if it's exposure to the air that keeps some that makes something turn gray and you're like, okay, how do I get through? I'm just curious where your brain goes, because my brain goes to a specific place. How do we get something that hasn't been exposed to air? I think people's internal organs would be. 
Blood, you're saying. Yes, you can draw a blood door you're on the right. wall. You're right. You could, yeah. Just don't tell these outdoor kids about it. But yeah. like, I think I think we have a way out for yeah. everyone. But then this is the other thing. So none of them want to leave. They're like, we don't belong, you know. They're like, oh, yeah, we now no longer have any desire to go back. Yeah, and Talia says this whole thing of like... Kids made fun of me, but that wasn't the worst part. I was a fake. I no longer belonged there. I was covering up who I really am. And I'm like, there's definitely some kind of queer self-annihilation narrative here, maybe, which is upsetting. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like a reverse Wizard of Oz, where in Wizard of Oz, she leaves the Technicolor world to go back to the black and white world, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a story that's very red as coded queer. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in this version, for some (laughs) nonsensical reason the straight world in the cis world is rainbow colored and then the queer (laughs) queer world is black and white yeah there's sort of outer darkness yeah not allowed to really have joy right sort of going wild with absolutely no you know ability to connect with the uh, the rest of the world and no rules and no sort of sense of safety but they do have dancing but they do have dancing. (laughs) well and this is the thing also as i was thinking um you could look at it as when you're a queer teen deciding you're going to be a queer teen, maybe it does feel like, oh, I'm leaving into this outer darkness, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, hopefully, you find out, like, no, it's actually way more fun. Yeah, it's way cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I was getting some like, yeah. tinges of that. Well, and she uses her still red lipstick to draw another hole in the wall before ben and tommy go queer too yeah because they still have a little bit of color left (laughs) uh and so she sends them back through and there are no long-term repercussions they look normal so annoying yeah because yeah she's like don't forget me and then they're like who yeah and they're like we're back in the dance high five Mm -hmm. then mrs borden grabs them and says you've been holding everyone up apparently talia hasn't okay that's already forgotten that she was there i noticed that too i'm like maybe she was not actually enrolled in the school yeah or maybe mrs borden couldn't see her Mrs. Borden says, you want to be in the photo, right? And so she brings them in line, and then they say, okay, Mr. Chameleon, take the photo. How long have they been gone? It seems like not very long. They've been holding up the dance for, like, 45 minutes or something? I have no idea. photo? Yes, but yeah, it's Mr. Chameleon, or someone who also has that name. <laughs> A very common name. <laughs> so presumably now all of the students who are in that photo have been transported to the Blazing Inferno on the other side. Yeah, that's right. You're in the gray world and it's on fire. Good luck. <laughs> Taxonomies? Yeah. Cultists. Yes. That's my first one. Love it. And, you know, obviously there's all kinds of Lovecraft things that could reference here, but so I just went ahead and said Lovecraft Country is a good example mm-hmm. of the horror trope of there's um, something really upsetting about the natural world that makes it seem suddenly unnatural to us. So we have to come up with a religious structure that's kind of messed up to try and get a sense of control, mm-hmm. especially one where we do something really bad and taboo that makes us feel like we're like the gods who are doing taboo things to us. Yeah. Yes. I also, I recently started playing the Call of Cthulhu RPG and it's similar, similar plot lines because of course. Of course. Yeah. Well, and then the other one I was thinking of, which we just watched was In the Earth, mm-hmm. that movie. Yeah. It's one where there's this weird fungi and these people go in the woods, these scientists to go find out what's happening. But then there's some scientists who went before them and they've both kind of developed this weird religious worshiping sort of violent thing going on it's fantastic it's such a good movie i loved it it seems like sort of what you're bringing up is yeah once we discover that there are things in the world that we don't understand 
we don't have the correct coping mechanisms to deal with it. And so we just resort to these very fucked up versions of things that already exist. And maybe in that it is also commenting on how the things that already exist are fucked up, like the concept that you would, you know, restrict people's freedom or take things away in order to appease your God. Well, exactly. And I think that's what a lot of these stories kind of leave out there for you to pick up on is it's like, guys, this is what most religions are. It's just, I mean, it looks scary to you when you see it from this defamiliarized perspective of a cult in a Lovecraft story, but that's what, like, whatever. Well, it's interesting because like, most Christianity is too. Well, that's the interesting thing is because those stories leave it there for you to pick up, but it's very easy not to also. You can exactly. just have this fun cult story. But yes, yeah, exactly. But it's there to kind of prod you to see that maybe some of the controlling ways people try to deal with uncertainty are actually a doing nothing to control those things and be harmful yeah what do you got elevator horror nice did you have that also no okay i did love the kind of unrelated series elevator (laughs) oh yeah that's right with the what are those sisters called um the soska sisters yeah it was kind of an escape room where this trick was you go in an elevator up from escape room to escape room and it was horror themed it was really cool it's a contest yeah uh, and very campy. What I found is there were surprisingly a lot of horror movies about elevators, uh, like more than I would have expected, which was zero. Elevators are scary. Yeah. So there's one from 1983 called The Lift, um, which ultimately turns on some kind of evil experiment with microchips. Oh. And I think the tagline was like, for God's sakes, take the stairs. It's like the one that's like, stay out of the water. You're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Done. And then it was remade in 2001. Uh, it was released as Down and also as Shaft. <laughs> but not that shaft. And it was starring Naomi Watts. And apparently it was supposed to have wide theatrical release, but 9-11 happened. And they're like, oh, this oh, is in bad taste. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would mean, like to see it, though. Yeah, I would see that, too. The, Did, was it ever released? I think limited. Okay. Um. So the other thing it reminded me of is, have you ever seen or been in a Paternoster lift? No. It's a kind of elevator that is sort of perpetually moving. I'm going to show what? it to you. Oh, it's like a revolving door, yeah. but for elevators. Yeah, so there's no doors. You just jump in and then jump off at your floor. Have you been in one? Yeah. It um, seems not very ADA friendly. If, probably. But yeah, there was one that was in the like visa office when I was in Hamburg, and it was very freaky. It's like an escalator. Yeah, but an elevator. I don't like it. Yeah, I didn't like it either. <laughs> yeah. Because escalators stress me out for that same reason, especially when I was a kid. I was always like, I'm not going to jump at the right time. I'm going to get sucked <laughs> yeah. in. Wow. Did you have other elevator horror? Um, that was my main elevator horror. There's okay. an M. Night Shyamalan about people being stuck in an elevator. With but... Satan. Yeah, it's called Devil. I want to see it. But... We can see it. It's okay. also, it's sort of conclusion is like, it's okay that the devil's there because that means God's there too. Ew. Yeah. More like it's okay that God's there because that means the devil's there too, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think elevator, I mean, there's just so many things that can go wrong. Many. I guess Speed is a good one, too. It's not a horror movie, but it has a great elevator sequence. <laughs> I just wonder how many people are scared of elevators a little bit. You know? Yeah. I would guess most of us. The same way most of us are scared of airplanes, but try not to think about it. Yeah. And part of it is that thing that is also part of the seed of real horror in this book, which is having to rely on people. Yes. Like, is this infrastructure functioning? Yeah. Did anyone cut corners or grease palms? Yeah. Or just decide to not hook this one up to an emergency alert system. Yeah, was someone having a bad day when they were taking care of the safety stuff? Right. I had color gone wrong. Mm, I had something similar. Yeah, um, and I thought about, you know, The Wizard of Oz I mentioned already, which is one where it's portrayed as like, oh, isn't this nice? Like, you go from the 
sepia-toned world to the color world. But actually, Dorothy would probably be poking her eyes out like Oedipus or something. <laughs> like, what is this? I can't probably take true. it. Probably true. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> well, R.L. Stein, I feel like, did. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's happening with these kids. The color out of space is of a course. clear analog for this, especially because they're... And so both the... Um, the H.P. Lovecraft short story, and then there's a great Nick Cage movie, Color Out of Space, that Which, came out. Which, I'm going to be honest, most of what I remember of that movie is Nick Cage talking about alpaca. <laughs> it follows the story pretty closely, yeah. but part of what happens in this story is there's, so this color falls, to, a meteorite falls to Earth, this color spreads out, and it's more called a color by analogy. Um, it's, you can't really describe it. It's outside the spectrum of human perception, but it turns the land kind of rotten and gray. And it was thinking about the tar pit and how it smells of dead animals. And there's a well on the property where this meteorite falls, where like skeletons are at the bottom of it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the other one I thought about, it's not exactly color, but it's that all summer in a day story that Arl Stein referenced the Ray Bradbury one, which is another one where it's. Like, the absence of light is driving someone mad. And there's actually another story also set on Venus by Ray, Br Ray Bradbury that I read. It's in the it's collected in The Illustrated Man, where it's called The Long Rain. And it's about these four, I think, astronauts or something trying to find their way to one of the sun domes on Venus. And they all are going mad along the way because they just can't take being in the rain so long. Mm -hmm. One of them, like, lies on his back and is just going to let his lungs fill with water. Um, so someone mercy kills him. Don't go to Seattle. <laughs> As someone who grew up in the Seattle area, I would say that I actually love the rain. It made me at least really love gray days. But the thing it does that's upsetting is anytime the sun is out, it makes you feel like I have to go out in it. Even now when I live in a place where it is sunny four, five months out of the year, I feel super guilty for being indoors at all. Yeah, you're like the girl in uh, All Summer in a Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I also had Color Horror, uh, Color Out of Space, Wizard of Oz. The You had Wizard of Oz? Yes. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. And then the only other one I had is kind of a reverse of this one, Pleasantville. Oh. Where Reese Witherspoon and Jake Gyllenhaal get sucked into a old-timey show that's in black and white, and then they start affecting things, and things start turning into color, but people <laughs> try and cover it up with gray makeup. Well, and that's also one about revisiting, like, let's look at the mid-century from the perspective of the 90s, right? And so maybe part of what this book is doing is looking at what was wrong with the mid-century, like so many school haunting books do, yeah. or school haunting stories do. Uh, I had haunted schools, actually, on this note. So one thing I was noticing is that a lot of them actually do go back to the mid-century. I was thinking about the My So-Called Life Halloween episode, which goes back to the 60s, where Angela, the main character, has this school book that belonged to a kid who died violently at the same school in the 60s, and she spends all Halloween seeing his ghost places and wanting to understand him. There's the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer episode, I Only Have Eyes for You, where it goes back to the 1950s, and there's these ghosts who were violently killed in the school, and they're kind of causing people to reenact what they did, um, which is interesting because Marty Noxon, who was the writer on that episode, at least according to Wikipedia, said, you know, ghosts for her are about repentance and second chances but i feel like it's the opposite it's like ghosts are about never being able to get past something regret yeah mm -hmm. which is i feel like how rl stein takes it to be like no you're stuck in this thing forever that happened to you by misfortune 
Yeah. And also the other thing about it being a haunted school is it's it's a place where you have to go as a child. You have to spend all your time there. Uh-huh. And then you get home and you have to do all this fucking work for it. And so yeah. it just feels like just, just being held against your will in a place you don't want to be. And so then being stuck there forever is a good, you know, nightmare for children. Now that you said that, I was th- hadn't thought about homework this way before, but I'm like, oh, this is just designed to make you think an eight-hour workday isn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> I also thought about this great uh, episode of the series Two Sentence Horror, mm-hmm. which is a Netflix series which has short horror subjects. And do you remember the one called Elliot, where it was about a trans boy in the school who is bullied and wanting to get away from that and ends up finding kind of like all these dead children who are trying to get away from stuff, too? Mm-hmm. Is really good. Yeah. Uh, and the writer is a poet, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Her name's Stephanie Adam Santos. And um, I was looking at her author page and she's like a poet and stuff, but she also writes for Two Sentence Horror. <laughs> I'm like, I need to read more of your stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Schools, man. Just what you said. Horrifying. Um. So, yeah, they, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I had an unfamiliar environment changes you. So there is Annihilation in the Area X trilogy, where going to Area X creates these physical and mental changes. Um, There's Roadside Picnic by the Strugatsky brothers. Oh, have I seen that? Um, So this is a book. uh, The the Tarkovsky movie Stalker is based on it. But Roadside Picnic imagines that there is this contact zone where aliens have been. And there are all of these weird things there. And so there are these people called stalkers who will go in and try and get them. But it's also highly dangerous and also causes mutations. Like there's a sort of like obvious metaphor for nuclear disaster. And also not unlike some of the other stuff we've been talking about, the sort of indifference of the universe, because some people are like, what is the meaning of this, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And there's one scientist who offers up the theory that like, I think some aliens just made a pit stop and you know how you have a roadside picnic and you just leave your trash. I think that's what they did. That's exactly like Color Out of Space, Mm -hmm. too. And I love that because it's so R.L. Stein. I feel like this is one of the most R.L. Steiny philosophically of the books because it's like people going mad with their realization that shit just happens. Yeah, there's not a there's not a meaning behind it. You really want there to be, but there isn't. (laughs) I had creepy children. Nice. The cover reminded me of Village of the Damned. I mean, uh-huh. I don't think you can look at a room full of black and white children that are creepy, creeping on you and not think of Village of the Damned, uh-huh. especially the original, which we still haven't watched. They also thought of a book that I've been wanting to talk with you about, the Neil Gaiman book, The Graveyard Book, uh-huh. uh, which is this kind of cool story about this boy who's raised by ghosts. And part of what happens in it is he makes friends with a girl who is raised by normal humans and um, they have these different adventures together, but it kind of ends up being too much for her and her memory has to be erased. She doesn't even want to kind of remember everything they did together. And so I was thinking about it as a specific subgenre of creepy children, which is children menacing other children. Mm-hmm. Salem's Lot is another good example, actually. Yeah. Also, it. Yes. A lot, a lot of, of Stephen King. King. Yeah. yeah. But it's this whole uh, what's scary about these children is they have too much independence, too much maturity too much comfort with the morbid Mm -hmm. and that makes them dangerous to other children it's like in order for children to be safe in the way we need them to be they need to be dependent and ignorant Mm -hmm. and so this book is like what happens if kids get outside of that yeah which is interesting because there's also a strain of scary children genre which is oh because they don't understand consequences they do horrible Uh things but as you're saying that it once again reminds me of my friend Dahmer right where it's the sort of real life 
obviously memoir, but real life version of this where, oh, like there's a kid who's like collecting all these dead animals and things like that and out doing things with friends that the parents aren't aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess whether it's because they know too much or whether it's because they're not, uh, they don't know enough yet, the fear is they're going to break taboos no mm-hmm. matter what. Right. Yeah. We need to get them to not. We need our taboos. Respected, damn it. <laughs> um, so I had a related one, which was feral children. Nice. Uh, so obviously Lord of the Flies, mm-hmm. where they sort of create this terrible society and have these conflicts. And then at the very end, they're rescued. And this this guy is like, you're good British children. Like, why are you doing this? And they, they have a religious cult themselves, mm-hmm. right? I've yeah. only seen The Simpsons. It's based off of it. Yeah. Das Bus. It's actually really good. Okay. The book. Um, I, I didn't read it in school, which is probably why I really liked it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there's the X-Files episode, Jersey Devil, where there's Love a it. feral person. And turns out, because there's a feral child also. Friday the tr- 13th has this going on a little bit. Like, Jason's kind of a feral yeah. child. That's a good point. And then there's the 2013 movie Mama, which is about these two girls who are found after being feral in the woods. And they're adopted by, I think, Jessica Chastain and her husband. (laughs) And they just keep referring to this entity called Mama. Have you seen it? We've seen it together. I also didn't remember anything about it, though. So, you know. Oh. There you go. It sounds cool. Yeah. I'd probably remember it. Wait, what was Mama? What does it Uh, Like a vengeful spirit type of thing. Does it come for them? Yeah, I think it wants to be their only mama is the situation creepy yeah yeah i mean it sounds kind of like pie whacket which i do remember but i don't remember this one Mm -hmm. my final one was similar to one you brought up earlier which is trapped in an alternate universe Mm -hmm. um so i thought of the wizard of oz again because dorothy is very upset to be trapped there (laughs) i thought about stranger things where Mm -hmm. he's trapped in the upside down world and then the one this most made me think of was the Rick and Morty episode, The ABCs of Beth, <laughs> where we learned that Rick's daughter, when she was a little kid, was like a scary child who was kind of sadistic to other children. And so he created an imaginary world for her called Fruity Land, where she couldn't get hurt. And then basically she traps another kid in there. She doesn't remember this as an adult, but then they go back to Fruity Land and they realize this kid who everyone thought was killed by his father actually has been trapped in Fruity Land and has been surviving through this cannibalistic incest cult. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's this story. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good episode. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But yeah, this, I guess, fear that if you get trapped, whether in an elevator or an alternate dimension... You're going to have to resort to something terrible to survive. No one might ever come for you. Yeah. I So that was also my last one was trapped in another dimension with Stranger Things and Area X. So oh, similar. Yeah. Yeah. Area but, X being the, the uh, Annihilation it's the Southern Reach trilogy, series, which, yeah. of which Annihilation is the first. I don't think they're doing the whole trilogy for the movies. But yeah. But yeah. And so you get stuck somewhere and it changes you into right. something not human. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it has an element of... Well, these people who have gone feral or whatever, they aren't actually bad. Something bad happened to them and it kind of broke them. Mm -hmm. But also we need to kill them. Yeah. Even though what they are is mostly a reflection of what's wrong with our society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Kill them. Anyway, back at the dance. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where everything is fine. Yeah. Nothing disturbing ever happens. Nope. In that middle school. (laughs) Well, I certainly had shared universe. Me too. Oh, good. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, Attack of the Mutant. Oh, tell me. Remember where the kid turns into ink? Yeah. These kids turn into a lack of ink. Yeah. Well, or Or black and white wing. Right, they turn into grayscale. So I'm wondering... So they're cheaper? (laughs) 
Well, first of all, I'm wondering if the goose verse is actually all a drawing, right? (laughs) If people are made of ink. I mean, they are in that their words printed on a page. Yeah. So, yes, in a way. (laughs) But I wondered if there was something going on there that also had a weird elevator. uh, Oh, yeah. That they get kind of stuck in. I'm wondering if someone involved in Big Elevator is behind some of these weird experiments with draining people of color or turning them into inkjet people? Or is Big Stairway behind this saying, don't take the elevator, take the stairs? (laughs) Oh, fair enough. But the (laughs) other... So this is a side point. I don't want to get us too off track here. But the elevator design is really interesting. And you know what I was already kind of thinking about was Say, Choose, and Die, which Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you were also thinking about. Mm -hmm. But remember how the camera was hidden in that weird kind of steampunk table? Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like whoever designed that could easily have designed designed this sideways elevator. It seems like buildings in the Gooseverse hold hidden places within them, right? They hold hidden compartments. Nothing is what it looks like. A wall doesn't necessarily have on the other side of it what you think it does. Yeah. Well, I was kind of wondering if maybe the reality police built this elevator even. If Mm -hmm. they want to just go check on this other dimension and make sure it's staying ship shape and in its place. Maybe. Maybe they know how to access it. Yeah, maybe a they have like a key card or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, why don't you take it for a bit? I have a lot of layers of theory here. Yeah, so mine is the, the sort of main direction I was going in was the connection to Say Cheese and Die. Oh, nice. So, Mr. Chameleon, I was wondering if that would be, that could be either Spidey or his mysterious partner because I just looked back at my notes for Say Cheese and Die and I don't think we ever got a name for him. Also, the, Miss Spidey's real name was Fritz Fredericks, and part of me is like, German name, 1947. Yes. Like, yeah. And he would have been probably a young man. Well, he said he was a young man when they were working on the camera experiment, him and his partner. Mm-hmm. So if he was born in the 20s or 30s, then he'd be like probably in his 20s uh, in 1947. Mm-hmm. So maybe he was a research scientist at a German university who was like, let's leave. Operation Paperclip. Yeah. Which feeds in really well to some Cold War shit I want to bring up. Oh, cool. But yes, I also thought this about Spidey. Mr. Chameleon, I was thinking Mr. Chameleon was his partner, uh, and I was thinking, I guess he's still been working on more technology to terrorize children. Still loose in the universe. Um, And then the other piece of this, uh, I know you're going to take this in another direction, but the other piece of this is Mrs. Borden has Tommy photograph everything with a Polaroid camera, and then one of the uh, banners breaks. And so I was like, oh, is this the same Sages and Die type camera? Mrs. Borden is in on it. Yeah. She also was, I mean, yeah, because what else would you invite Mr. Chameleon back? Why else would you have a bunch of fucking statues in your school and like this like boarded up area? Speaking of people with cults, Mm -hmm. secret cults, Mm -hmm. worshipping child murder or something. Yeah, something. It's the 50 year anniversary. Worshipping the technology. Right. Well, it's the 50 year anniversary of when those children went missing. So I wouldn't be surprised if her and Mr. Chameleon want to celebrate in some way. Yeah. Make another sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they feel like they have to every every 50 years. (laughs) That's such a good point about the Polaroid. So it does play in. That was my that was my supposition. It's the only way I could make sense of it. She having a role. It makes sense to me. She did tell him to take pictures only of the things before the people got there. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if she was trying to test it out a bit. Yeah, it also suggests that, like, there are other ways you could have taken pictures of this, but bringing in Mr. Chameleon seems like there's a specific motive behind it. And also, I'm wondering now if they're just going to build a huge, like, really wide school around these two buildings now as a result of these kids disappearing. (laughs) They keep trying to cover up the sins of the past (laughs) with bigger and bigger buildings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Well, and then I would like to add on to that the super bright flash 
that Mr. Chameleon uses as part of whatever technology this is that makes the children all go to this other world obviously makes me think of both the flashlight in My Best Friend is Invisible and what do they call it? Molecule detector? Molecule detector light, yeah. Right. And then also the bright light over the mirror and let's oh, yeah. get invisible. Something's wrong with light and the goose first and it can make your body change in upsetting ways. Mm-hmm. Stay out of the light. <laughs> Does this imply, do you think that Mr. Chameleon is working with either some of the same technologies or some of the same people who are behind the molecular flashlight or the mirror? I don't know. But thinking about it, you know, both the mirror and the bright light and the camera and the bright light, you know, you have something with a reflective surface and a bright light. So the camera might just be a more portable way of making that happen. Yeah. Um, oh, I think that's a good point. The molecule detector light is just nonsense. And I refuse to, to, to think about it, even though, yes, it makes perfect sense the way that you're bringing it up. <laughs> It detects molecules, Alyssa. Can you do that? I, I, yes. <laughs> those were basically my my main shared universe points, although I was also thinking that those statues of children, I was kind of wondering what they're for and especially how creepily real they are. And it made me think a bit of both Slappy and the lawn gnomes. And so I was wondering, I don't know, is someone trying to resurrect the children? Or like I said, is it a way of kind of talismanically keeping them in their place? Yeah, maybe it holds them there and just no one's aware of that. Because there's the weird doubles thing in My Best Friend is Invisible, or in Let's Get Invisible also, right? Where mm-hmm. you have one of you in the real world and one of you trapped in the other world. And we get that with a lot of ghosts too, right? Mm-hmm. In The Goose First, in, for example, The Ghost Next Door, where there's yeah. these doubles that are trying to replace each other. So maybe this is a way of controlling the double. Yeah. As well as getting rid of the, I don't original. say original, but yeah. Well, I would think the original, right? Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, the original. Yeah, that's true. So maybe the doubles, maybe those terracotta warrior children are actually just like even more frozen in place with some kind of spell or something. Mm-hmm. They're there like screaming for help silently yeah. in a dark room. They're like, we thought we were coming to a better place. <laughs> All right. Well, I had one thing I want to talk about, which is something to do with the Cold War. Excellent. I want to talk about 1947. Cool. The first year of the Cold War, Mm -hmm. the last being 1991, which makes me think that we should talk about the Goosebumps series, which starts in 1992 as post-Cold War literature. Cool. But let's talk a little about what happens in 1947. You're familiar with me doing this, too. Mm -hmm. And we'll try to put it together. So, January. Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, gets murdered. Oh. Yes. Der Spiegel is first published. (laughs) Communists take power in Poland. Uh, it's really, really cold. <laughs> Christian Dior debuts the new look, which emphasizes the hips and bust silhouette, moving away from a more masculine wartime style in women's fashion. Prussia is officially abolished. The, um, there's a Taiwanese anti-government uprising suppressed, uh, which starts off what's called the White Terror. It's this starts with this February 28th massacre, where basically the allies are hand over control of Taiwan from Japan to China. And there's just brutal massacres mm-hmm. um, by the Chinese government of Taiwanese people who want to be independent. Yeah. Reading about 1947, this is just a quick sidebar, but it really gave me a strong feeling, which you probably already have deeply embedded in you, of what a shit show post-World War II was. Yeah. And how much it's this, you know, at first when I was reading this, I was thinking for reasons we might get into about the GI Bill and like schools as an engine of equality. But most of what happened in the late 40s was like, let's fuck things up. 
completely let's realign the world according to the u.s versus ussr access yeah exactly it's just a disaster um the international monetary fund begins to operate oh good yes kurdish people's republic leaders are killed the world learns of the dead sea scrolls jackie robinson signs a contract with the brooklyn dodgers becoming the first african-american player since the 1880s to play major league baseball Wikipedia lists weirdly a lot of debut dates of Tom and Jerry cartoons, like specific cartoons. <laughs> I, think, I don't know why. I think there's a fan who went in there and made sure that that happened. Well, props to you. I hope you're a listener. Miracle on 34th Street premieres in May. Mm-hmm. In May. Oh, weird. <laughs> uh, the Doomsday Clock, your favorite, is yeah. uh, introduced. Yeah. There is the first Men in Black encounter reported by someone in, of course, the Puget Sound. <laughs> Anne Frank's diary is published. A successful malaria eradication program begins in the U.S. Roswell happens. <laughs> uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee begins investigating Hollywood. Howard Hughes flies the spruce goose. Raytheon produced the first commercial microwave oven. Oh, I didn't realize that's where Raytheon got its start. Our neighbors over in Massachusetts. Wall, yeah. <laughs> I was staying behind a woman at Starbucks today whose uh, marathon shirt was sponsored by Raytheon. Cool. I wanted to ask her about it. But... <laughs> And then, uh, finally, a casual fashion store called Hennes and Moritz opens in Sweden, which would eventually become... Oh, H&M. Yep. Oh. Didn't know it was Swedish. No. What do you think? Why 1947? I mean, I realize it's 50 years earlier, so he's probably just picking a date. But also, do any of the fears, which, of which there are many, of these mid-1940s moments feed into our understanding of this story, of the gray world of what these 90s kids are thinking looking back on the past that's led to the place their their society is in as a quick sidebar i would want to say so obviously the 50-year thing but also as a child of the 90s i still kind of knee-jerk think of 1947 as being 50 years ago and so i was very much confronted with the fact that it's it's a lot longer ago now um but these horrible things are happening all over the world america is fairly prosperous though Mm -hmm. because there was with the exception of Pearl Harbor, there was no fighting on uh, on American shores and, and nothing on the lower 48. And being wealthy by comparison is still being wealthy. And having and like sort of leading the world in consumer goods at that time. Yes. And so probably there's this moment of feeling prosperous, feeling like things are rebuilding, things are returning to normal, right, with men re- returning and yes. chasing women out of the workforce. Uh-huh. And some of the sort of status quo being restored. Yeah. But with more money. But... I don't know. It's this interesting reminder that, like, actually things are still terrible, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? We have a bunch of stuff we don't want to talk about. Like, But I think that's a really good read on it, right? First of all, this sense of something horrible is at the center of our apparent prosperity. And second of all, paranoia, right? Mm-hmm. Who can you trust? And, like, what weird th- things are we going to do to try and give ourselves a sense of order? Yeah. And, of course, that creeping paranoia of communist infiltration, right? Uh-huh. Because it's, yes... AFO has been vanquished, but a new one has arisen. Uh-huh. We grew up seeing the big bad being Russians, right? And that would have been such a staple of the actual Cold War era. And we kind of got that like last gasp of it. And I right. think a lot of the 90s were about like, but who's our enemy now? And a lot of the X-Files feels like it's about that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I guess 1997, like we're several years away from the Cold War being a threat. And of course, this there's all this optimism that like, oh, things are getting better. Although uh, this is the defining experience of Arl Stein's youth. Yes. Um, and but early all, adulthood. And also by the late 90s, it's also apparent that like 
that early 90s optimism isn't actually justified because you have, like, if you track the doomsday clock across the 90s, right. it's extremely low in the early 90s. And around 1997, late 90s somewhere, um, because, like, say, India and Pakistan are, are arming themselves with nuclear weapons and, yeah. you know, things are becoming more tense in the Middle East, like, it's going back towards midnight. So mm-hmm. so we're sort of also at the end of that optimistic period and we're, we're you know pretty soon going to be getting to the post 9-11 era. Well, and that's something I actually like about thinking about about this book is, you know, there's this kind of sense that the 1947 black and white world and the 1990s Technicolor world are bleeding into each other. Yeah. And you could relate that to this sense of like, oh, we thought we moved beyond this thing, but actually all of its fallout, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, yeah. is still going to encroach on us. It's still going to creep back in. Yeah. And I feel like there's also this way in which you and I are children of the 90s we weren't really taught this history very well. No. There's also, there's always this sense that like, oh, recent history, like you were more or less alive then. Like you already know about this. Your teachers just think that because they were alive for it. Yeah. But basically it's possible R.L. Stein is also watching all these kids grow up with no knowledge of all of the previous generation's fears and things like that and feeling like, oh, everything's just going to be fine. But it's not. Yeah. Which I think is probably also every generation. Sure, of course. But like... maybe I mean, maybe not Gen, Gen Z, because I think they're very well aware that everything is fucked. Yeah. Yeah, they're like trying to tell previous generations, yeah. like, hey, by the way, yeah. you need to be aware of this. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm good on Arl Stein for taking action and writing children's horror stories to make us feel uneasy about the past and maybe look into it a little more. <laughs> This is a small sidebar, but I did have a, like I said, a moment where I thought we could think about this as being related to the GI Bill and the now failed project, which was failing hard in the 90s, of schools as an engine of economic mobility. Mm-hmm. I think the wind has gone out of that sail almost entirely at this point. Yeah. I was thinking you could also look at this as a potential class narrative of how some people get left behind and other people get to flourish. And it's actually schools are often an engine of creating, reproducing that separation rather than helping someone overcome it. Well, and again, that's what's really upsetting about the ending where Talia comes back. She's like, I don't belong there. I belong with my kind and we'll just be invisible to the rest of you. You go have a good time. It's like the end of Stand By Me. Yeah. Where he's like, well, you'll go off to college and you shouldn't be friends with us anymore because we're going nowhere. Yeah. And so a couple things that made me think of this, uh, which is a, I'm just going to say I am willfully engaging in a dramatic interpretation of the text. Uh, okay. But remember what we opened with? What pulled uh, our friend off the ladder, our friend Tommy? Clutziness? An invisible hand. Oh, right. Oh, are you going in an Adam Smith direction here? <laughs> the invisible hand of the market pulled him down. <laughs> well, he was on his way up the ladder in his school. And he sure thought he was. And then at the end, Mr. Chameleon shows up and is like, nope. I know. Well, and then the other Guess thing... Guess what? You're a millennial loser. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One thing the GI Bill gave us was boomers. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, the horror. Um, uh, but then um, the other thing I was thinking about related to this was the school colors. Do you remember what they are? Red and black. Uh huh. Yeah. Do you know what the red and the black is about by Stendhal? No, I've not read it. I well, is neither it like have the I. Napoleonic but Wars. I Wikipedia it. It is a little bit about the Napoleonic Wars, but like so many nineteenth-century books, it is also primarily about barriers to social mobility uh. and how kind of luck and stuff plays into any hope for that. But for the most part, you're not going to be able to uh, rise socially at all. Cool. All right. Well, maybe we should move on with our lives. <laughs> um, but I would like to say just a fun aside that may may make your jaw drop regarding the GI Bill. A lot of people pushed back against it, unsurprisingly, no wanting shit. to retain uh, universities as the provinces of the elite. 
unsurprisingly. Shocker. I'm shocked. Are you also shocked that a lot of black GIs were prevented from accessing the benefits? I'm shocked. Look at my face. I'm so shocked. The University of Chicago president did not support the GI Bill and said, quote, Education is not a device for coping with mass unemployment. Colleges and universities will find themselves converted into educational hobo jungles. If oh. only! <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the same school where they were devising, like, all the strategies for, you know, the the economy as we know it. Yes, the Reagan shit, yeah. Yeah. It, it's all one big nest. Cool. It's all connected. Well, on that note, what would you just give The Haunted School on a scale of one to five bewares? I really liked this book. I think I'd give it, like, a 4.75. Cool. I'd like it if some more things were tied up, but God, I, like like you were saying, I'd read a whole series about the gray world. Yeah, I'd give it a four. There was a lot that I liked about it. Cool. Uh, what are we reading next? Next week, we are reading Werewolf Skin. Yes, and we're going to get to pair it with a very special episode. We are having a guest on, a friend from the Bay Area Satanists, who we're going to discuss in a bonus episode, the TV episode of werewolf skin yeah so that'll be coming to your earbuds soon yes happy halloween season yes the season is upon us well as usual we'd love it if you got in touch with us we mean it actually we like to respond to your messages and hear them and read them yeah you can write to us at saypodanddie at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us on twitter and instagram at saypodanddie and why not rate, review, and subscribe it helps us reach more goose punks leave us five bowares on apple podcasts Makes us feel happy. It does. Listener beware. Those Those were the scares. Good boo. Good boo. Turn, turn, a boy called suddenly. So loud I jumped back. Turn, turn, a girl repeated. We don't belong here, Ben cried. We're totally lost. Turn, turn, they all chanted. They began to dance. Keeping the circle tight, they moved to the right in a rapid rhythm. They raised one leg high and stepped to the right, lowered the leg and gave a little kick. Then another high step to the right. Some kind of weird dance. The dark dancing figures moved in and out of the swirling fog. I saw that they were holding hands as they danced, keeping the circle closed, keeping Ben and me inside. Their expressions were hard, their eyes cold. Turn, turn. They stared at Ben and me as if challenging us, as if daring us to stop them. Turn, turn, turn to gray. Turn, turn, turn to gray. And suddenly, watching the eerie dance, listening to their machine-like chant, I knew. It was some kind of weird ceremony. They were holding us there until we were gray like them.